Do you want me to call you Jennifer or Jen? Just call me Jen. Okay. Because yeah. Anne always refers to you as Jennifer. I know. She's so formal about it. She's one of the few people that calls me Jennifer. Well, she calls me Peter, too. She's one of the few people that calls me Peter. I think it's just like a generation. I think she may be the only one that calls me Peter. My mom used to call me that. That's why she does it, probably. That's it. Do you get nervous when you're Peter? Yes. I actually can't hardly believe it, but I'm introducing today episode number five. It's been going great. It's been interesting, and we really appreciate you being part of this. So welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, President of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. Before we get started, I want to remind you that you all can actually be part of the show. And and trust me, this is probably the most interesting part when we get to hear from you guys directly. And we want to hear from you about your experiences from Nordstrom. Have we made you a lifelong customer? Or do you have a bone to pick? Or maybe you just want to heap praise on a specific salesperson that made your day. We want to hear about it all. Give us a call and leave a voicemail and you may end up on a future episode of the Nordy Pod. So get ready. Here's the number. 206-594-0526. And if you leave me your number, I might just call you back. You can also send me an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com and be part of the conversation. Now, look, I may regret this because I already get a lot of emails and calls, but it is true that we learn a lot from all those customer interactions. And I'd love to be able to find any of you listeners that want to be part of the Nordy Pod. So I welcome them all. Okay, let's get on with the show. In this episode, we're going to hop in my car and actually take a ride down to our South Center store, which is kind of by the airport here in Seattle. And we're going to talk with an employee who's been working with us since 1974. And in fact, I actually used to work with her at that store in the mid-80s. The hard customers that you help will always remember you and say, I want that lady, that old lady that wears a hat all the time, because she will take time with me. You know, it's so important. You'll get a customer, oh, they, that person said they couldn't fit me. Well, sit down, I'll try to fit you. But before we hit the road, I want to introduce you to someone who Sports Illustrated has dubbed one of the most powerful, influential, and outstanding women in sports, the athletic director at the University of Washington, Jen Cohen. Jen Cohen is an outstanding individual, regardless of her involvement in sports, not only because of her achievements, but for her character. Jen believes that sports provide some of the only environments for learning crucial life skills and disciplines and places great value on the long-term success of the young adults that come through her sports programs. I myself have had the pleasure of getting to know Jen personally and benefit greatly from witnessing her incredible business acumen and thoughtful leadership. Though, as you'll hear, Jen didn't always feel as confident in her own ability to succeed. She describes her younger self as average at best, never the first pick, always trying to prove herself. But now, far exceeding everyone's expectations, Jen is an inspiring example of determination and endurance to everyone she meets. So without further ado, go Huskies, here's Jen Cohen. I'm really excited today to be talking to Jen Cohen. And you may ask yourself, well, who is Jen Cohen? Well, she is the athletic director at the University of Washington. And there's a lot that's interesting about that to me. First of all, I went to the University of Washington. I played some basketball there. And, you know, I've, I've followed the sports programs in the athletic department. But I think the other thing that's super interesting is... I don't know, Jen, how many women athletic directors are there in Division One? At the Power Five level, there's six. Six. Six out of 65. So it's unusual that you have this job. And I'm super interested in leadership generally, which is 
one of the themes of the stuff I'm interested in touching on. And, you know, you've got so many, uh, well, your job's interesting and you got a lot of challenges, I'm sure, related to all kinds of things. And so I want to be able to get into that. But Jen, so tell me a little bit about like how you even got started doing this. I mean, did you grow up playing sports? Did you know that you wanted to be involved in sports? Well, you know, first, it all goes back to my childhood. You know, I, I'm a transplant from California. Uh, we moved from California to Tacoma, Washington when I was in elementary school. And my dad was looking for some way to connect my family to the region and to the community. And so what better way to do that than through sports? And so he bought Husky football season tickets. And he wasn't of University no of Washington ties. So We are a San Diego family living in university place, looking for something to do. Uh, the team had gotten pretty competitive at that time. It was like 1978. So, you know, Warren Moon, there was a Rose Bowl. So we'd sit in the end zone in the family fun zone, four tickets. and <laughs> The family, family fun, zone. fun zone. I think we got some hot dogs, you know. <laughs> you got to bring back the family fun zone. I know, where it's a little, the business is a little bit different than that yeah, now, is. so yeah. isn't it? But we started going and it was kind of love at first sight for me. I, I would go down to the tunnel and bark at the opponents and collect wristbands from players after really? the game. Games and I wrote the coach in fifth grade a letter and said, I'm going to replace you someday. And my initial dream was to be a um, division one football coach. So that's how it all started. So were you an athlete too? Were you playing sports? I was a volleyball player and I played softball too. In, yeah. in high school? In high school. Yeah. And I'm in college, but, but I will say this, like I was never elite at anything. You know, I, I have a, it's kind of cool to have a childhood dream. Eventually, my dream was to become the athletic director at Washington. It happened. It seems very storybook. But the reality is, is like nothing was ever easy for me. I was kind of never the first picked. I was never the last picked. But I was kind of average at a lot of things. It's I can relate to that. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> fascinating now to be able to lead at this level and have so much influence on other people's lives. It's a, To me, it's like a reminder that we can all become everything we've ever dreamed of becoming because all of us have advantages and disadvantages. And I certainly was not on paper the kind of person that was supposed to get this opportunity. I can tell you that. Well, yeah, that's interesting. So you'd worked for the University of Washington in the athletic department for quite a while. Yeah, I've been there 24 years now. I'd been there 18 years prior to getting the opportunity to lead. And even that now, if you think about your industry or our industry, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I think we've always been so aligned with Nordstrom is that we're like a family type culture and people within the infrastructure still get an opportunity to progress and evolve and grow. But in business now, you don't see that as much. And in college sports, you don't see it as much. But yeah, I was at the university for a long time before I was promoted. It, it, I remember at the time striking me as a little unusual particularly for a school the size of the University of Washington and the size and success of their program that they would promote from within. I mean, typically, don't you kind of go out and grab someone that's done that job at maybe a little yeah. smaller school? So how did it work that you became the leading candidate as a person that, you know, I'm, I don't know what the job you started doing yeah. there 24 years ago, yeah. but I'm sure it was quite yeah. a progression to get to be Oh, it was. I did so many different jobs. I actually even left athletics and worked in academic fundraising for several years throughout my career. So I think that I was interim. And usually interims don't get the chance to eventually lead. And it was a fair, competitive process. I think sometimes in cultures, when you need really significant change, it's better to go outside. But there are also other times where the person that has the most knowledge, has the best vision for the department, that has the most understanding, has a lot of relationships. It's a very relational business that we do. I think it was the fact that I had had such a strong footing within the community, had such a strong grasp for where the strengths and weaknesses were for the department. And honestly, I'd like to believe that my passion to like helping others become better and to put the students first and just looking at this, you know, kind of an alignment with institutional values to athletic values was such a good fit for the university at the time. Explain a little bit. I mean, if you're a person like me that likes sports and stuff, you think about, wow, being the athletic director would be just awesome. <laughs> you just talk about sports all day long. Yeah, I wish. So tell me kind of the yeah. balance of what it is that you do. Yeah, it's a complicated <laughs> job. I think, you know, it's I think it'd be fun to be a fan again, you know, but this job is not about being a fan. It's not a hobby. It's a hobby for everybody else. I love athletics and college athletics because it is a complete contradiction at all times. Ultimately, what we do is develop people. We have about 650 student athletes every year that are in our program. We have 22 sports and our job is to use sports as an opportunity to not only educate, but to holistically develop people. And the crazy thing is, is that all of us that are in that environment are continuously developing too. And so it's this 
wonderful environment to do that. Then you try to put that into the fact that it's a big business. You know, it's our budget's about $130 million. There's a ton. I have a, over, you know, 400 employees and there's a ton of pressure to win and to win no matter what. And it's, a, you know, somebody wins and somebody <laughs> loses every weekend. Well, you know, I was going to ask you about that. Like, how do you measure success? Because you talk yeah. about it being a people development thing. Then you talk about winning games and you talk about money. I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening there. So, as you're thinking about what you do, like how uh, upfront, how do you define success? Yeah, for your job? There, I, I look at it a little bit differently from a personal standpoint versus the job itself. So personally, I measure success on the impact I have on lives, on sticking to who I am as a person and having values and discipline and doing things that nobody else would be willing to do because I'm going to put others and the organization first and my relationships and all of that. Like, that's what I'm all about. That's success for me. So, so is that things like your know, graduation rates and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah. So in kids? the job, that's personal. For in the, in the work, it's holistic success. So first and foremost, are student athletes having a great experience? And we measure that. We collect data. We summarize their experiences and evaluate that. Graduation, absolutely. Academic success, absolutely. Job placement and life after college, absolutely. But we are here to win. You know, we're about excellence, just like your business. I mean, you guys don't want to just have people have a great experience in the <laughs> store and then have them not buy anything. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, I think what's <laughs> different true. for us, though, than a business, and people always say it's a business, and it is, but this is why I say it's a contradiction, is that if it were a business, we would only have two sports. So we have 22 teams and only two of them make enough profit to pay the bills. So in your business, you'd and that's be, men's football, men's basketball. Yes. And in your business, you'd be taking stuff off the floor right. that wasn't selling. Well, I'm not going to take a national championship men's rowing program or women's rowing program or softball program or volleyball program or cross country program or women's golf program off the floor. Yeah. But Winning and losing is part of our overall measurement, but it's much more holistic than just that. In our work, the thing that has changed the most over the last few months is that it feels like we're living and dying by results every weekend, where it used to be you'd have seasons to evaluate, right. the emotions around being successful and really meeting others' expectations. And that's why I talk about my personal views on this, because personally, I've transitioned to being a kid that was a chip on the shoulder, I'm going to prove you wrong because I was never good enough and I worked my ass off to get to where I am to now being somebody like I'm 52. Like you can't keep trying to prove other people wrong. You got to prove it to yourself that you're enough. And so my whole shift on how I view success in my own life has nothing to do with the external anymore. It's all within me. But you got a lot of bosses. I mean, so you got upper oh, campus yeah. and then you've got all these donors and yeah. well-intended fans like me. <laughs> like, you're you're are, easier than oh, most. Well, I'm glad. I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. But you know what I mean? You've got people that it's such a personal thing from they all they went to the University of Washington. It means yeah. a lot to them. They maybe donate money. Yeah. They have an expectation through their own filter. Like, so tell me how you deal with all that. Yeah. I mean, one, I love the relationship piece of this. You know, the fact that people care so much and that is such a big part of their lives, that's what makes the work meaningful, right? Like it's not just that Saturday or just that, you know, Friday night basketball game. It is like the whole experience. Your family has it, you know, you all have been intertwined into the university. It brings you together. Right. So that's the incredible part. But there's a reason why it's called fans. And that's because people are crazy <laughs> and there's no objectivity. And so I, you know, what, how I manage that is one great gratitude that people care enough to having enough of a foundation within the organization to know why we exist. We don't exist just to win. We exist to develop students and surrounding myself with really great objective people on my staff so that as you go through, I mean, it is really challenging. I mean, people are nasty. I mean, I'd love to show you and you y'all get them too. the oh, well, we emails, get a lot of feedback. the tweets. Yes. I mean, just absolutely. You're a joke, you know, uh, <laughs> way to keep collecting a paycheck and not care um, to women can't do what you're doing. To So I do mean, you respond to all that stuff personally? I, I used to respond to every email myself. I will still respond myself to anybody that takes the time to share something that is thoughtful. Like I've been on season ticket holder for a long time and I, I can't stand what I'm seeing or whatever. Yeah. I will write back. Somebody that tells me I'm a joke doesn't deserve my response. Well, good for you. Yeah. We get a lot of feedback here and we pride ourselves on responding to all that as well. You know, it's funny you mentioned that part of what's good about this is the reason that people are engaging with you is because they do care. 
And we talk about that here, too. I mean, you know, yeah. it's not fun disappointing people or frustrating people. But we get a lot of feedback because people care. And there's a lot of constructive stuff in that. And I would imagine, Absolutely. other than, you know, why are you playing this quarterback? Why don't you play a different yeah. one? I mean, what do you find kind of constructive in the feedback that you get from I think fans? the best thing is the feedback I get from other people in business. You oh, know, really? I grew up on the development side, as you know. So I was a fundraiser for the university and still am really in the role that I'm in. And so that led me to relationships with people like you and so many others. And the best feedback I get is around the business of people. How do you manage adversity? How do you make decisions? You know, how do you have the courage to do something that isn't necessarily popular? Like that's the kind of feedback I listen to. People that know what it's like to be in their arena and compete at life, at business. Just, I love competitors. And to me, it's all transferable. You know Jamal Bay, right? Yeah. So Jamal Bay on our men's basketball team, he's been around for a while. Last year was, you know, just a very unsuccessful season would be an understatement, right? <laughs> it's going to be better he, this year, I'm pretty it sure. It is, but I saw him the other day and he was talking to me about culture and he was talking about the team and he was talking to me about, I can't quite describe it, but how fun it was and how different it was going to be. And I just said, Jamal, this is exactly life. What you're describing, I said, I have been in the same environment so many times. I've made one or two hires and it completely negatively impacted the performance of the organization. And I've made other decisions and we've made other decisions and we've crushed it. Everything you're doing on that court is exactly what your life's going to look like. It's exactly what business looks like. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about, you know, sports as a metaphor for happens in business and in life. I mean, so for me, growing up on teams and stuff like that, there was a lot of connection to when I was young working here. I mean, you worked in a department. You kind of work as a team. You have a manager. It's like your coach. Yeah. You're supposed to sell a certain amount every day. It's like the points you score. Yeah, it all adds up yeah. to something. And while there's a lot of individual parts of it, there's a huge team part of it. But I'm interested just how you think about that in terms of the intersection with business. Yeah, I just think that uh, talent alone is completely overrated. And we learn that in sports. We learn that it, it can't just be that. It has to be how we all come together. You can't have any successful moment in our athletic department without the person standing next to you. Even in like the most individual sports like you golf or something. You really can't. Yeah. And so what I've seen is that whole, I really believe this whole talent thing being overrated and like how you come together and how you utilize the skills and the abilities of other people to accomplish something bigger than yourself. That is business, you know? And I think that a lot of times people, the world that we're living in now is like so individualized. It's like, I want everything else to change around me to <laughs> cater to my exact individual experience that I'm having. And like, that is not going to change the world. We are not going to solve problems that way. I fundamentally in my heart believe it because I've seen it over and over again, success, accomplishments, performances that you never could have imagined. And they only happen consistently with people working together. So you've got like, is it over 650 athletes, like 22 different sports? Yeah. How do you personally have a connection? I mean, obviously yeah. a big part of your connection is those head coaches. You hire those people, yeah. they report to you and stuff. But what about, I mean, you mentioned like Jamal Bay or yeah. the different players. How do you stay connected to them and feel like you really have a pulse on yeah, their Yeah, I think like anybody that becomes a CEO, the biggest challenge is being connected with the thing that you care the most about. You know, you get the job, you get that opportunity because somewhere along the way, you were the most connected, the, had the strongest ability to stay connected to purpose. And yet when you're in the chair, you've got all these different demands coming your way and it's easy to lose sight of the purpose. So for me, it's so simple. Like I can't be with every student athlete. I don't know every student athlete. I mean, how could you? Yeah, I, I don't. But what I do is do simple things like intentionally walk around the hallways of facilities where the student athletes are competing. I'll pop in a training room. You know, I'm, I'm not a big meeting person and the organic nature of connection is where like the magic happens. And so I started to do walking meetings, like kind of forcing my staff out of their offices. And I just started to walk just to walk just around. And it's amazing the things you learn, yes. you know, and you have to learn from your people. You know, I can't sit isolated with my own opinions about things without being in the mix. And that's not just with our student athletes, but that's with, you know, our employees, you know, and we're so diversified in the skills and talents that our staff has. And I'm getting older. 
you know, and the world's changing. And so I just think being in with people and, you know, I think your company is so similar, like, you know, that there's not one person that's more important than the other. And so I would just say you have to be now more than ever, though, as leaders in these jobs that are so demanding with so much more pressure, I think, in public leadership than ever before. You have to be intentional. And that pressure, again, comes back mostly like in winning. I mean, would you say that's the biggest yeah, pressure I, point? I think it's that leadership now is not admired or respected. I just think culturally the whole world and society is changing for certain in our country. And I think with social media and 24-7 information and false information, that the standard for leaders is almost like you're not human anymore. And this is so counter to my belief system. That's why I like sports, because you have to publicly fail every single day. And find the courage to get back up and keep going. Yeah, there's a lot of humility there. There's a lot of authenticity so in all that much, all, works. all that. And like, I think we all are kind of in these environments where there's so many people on the outside looking in that don't have that same value structure anymore. That's why I'm so passionate about still committing myself to sports, because I think it just can teach these values that are not being taught in other places anymore. You talked about having a lot of people you're kind of responsible for and keep in touch with, but it's impossible to get, as much as you might try, get a direct kind of relationship with everybody. So what I've learned is you kind of need truth tellers that are part of your team that'll tell you what's going on because things might seem okay, like maybe you're winning or something, but there might be stuff, uh, undercurrents that are unhealthy and not what you're looking for. So tell me about how you leverage like your staff and the truth tellers that work around you to give you the straight scoop. Yeah. Naturally, most people would think that your executive team around you is the team that is your best truth tellers. And I think it's important to have that within your organization. But really where I look for it is the people that are more on the ground, athletic trainers, you know, people that are servicing students, you know, strength and conditioning coaches, yep. academic support services, our wellness team. Those are the folks that are Every single day, interacting with the student athletes. What about like managers? Do you have relationships managers with the managers? Too, sometimes too? I have, but I also have other people. So in our structure, because we have 22 teams, we have senior leaders that have management of those programs in their portfolios. So they then, on a daily basis, have more interaction with the teams themselves and the operations of those teams more than I do. So then the expectation for those folks is to kind of do the same thing, walk around, be visible, travel with the teams, you know, kind of keep your eyes and ears open. So there are structures with like reporting lines and meetings and data feedback and things like that. But to me, a lot of the information and the real feeling about what can be going on within different programs kind of starts and ends with those types of meaningful, trusting, respectful relationships. I will say this, though. I remember when I first got the job in, um, and we were talking about this with leadership. I remember when I got the job and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the loneliest place in the whole entire world. (laughs) And also, I don't have my shit figured out. It was like my first time in my entire career that I fully understood the pressure of a visible student athlete and a head coach. And I started realizing this is a university that is very committed to the development of students. It's our passion. It's what we do. The university is very invested in that, too. Like, we don't just say that, but it's a very student-centric organization and, and university. You've seen it. You've helped fund it. We spent a lot of money on our students. And it hit me, but we're not spending enough resource and intentionality on the people that have the biggest influence on the students. So that's when it changed for me. I realized, oh, wow. I'm not here to just fulfill this culture to develop the students. I have a responsibility to help develop everybody around me. So I started, we have people that we've hired that come in and do, our coaches have confidential sessions every month. With, with, with Coach Peterson now, and I've uh-huh. hired this other guy named Brett Ledbetter who does one-on-one coaching sessions with me, who owns a company called What Drives Winning. And I give them spaces now where they can be with each other. And I'm not there. I don't know what happens in those discussions. Obviously, there's something really concerning. I'll know about it. But I just think that to be able to create a culture where we're all on the same page, we have to accept that everybody needs the support and the coaching and the teaching versus making the assumption that you can just delegate out and everybody's where you're at. When you're leading, there's a reason why you are and other people aren't. (laughs) And so they need help. 
Yeah. And you need help too. So find your help. Yeah. But your job is to help bring other people along coaching and teaching in these jobs. That's been my biggest growth. And for sure is the area I need to get better at. Yeah. You know, one of the things I'm really enjoying being attached to the program, to everything that's happening out there with sports is, um, as you know, I'm a mentor for a kid kid, young man, on the University of Washington men's basketball team. And that was something that Coach Hopkins had had set up. And it's kind of to your point about development. Um, And it's been such a great experience for me to develop a relationship with a young man. I mean, I'm older than his parents. I'm sure he's thinking like, why am I talking to this guy? But there's different business leaders that are attached to that. And it's been great. Riley came over to my house yesterday and I've gotten to know him a little bit. And it's really rewarding. So can you talk a little bit about that, about how you try to round out their experiences yeah. that are way beyond, did you have a lot of success on the court Yeah, or on the I field? mean, we've invested, we created a career development program at Washington because I started to think that, hey, graduation rates and good grades, that's a baseline. Well, come on. I, I tell mean, people, young people all the time, once you come here, no one's going to ask about your grade no, point average. Exactly. No one cares. <laughs> but like, to me, the whole reason why we have athletics and we give kids a chance to come and compete and get an education isn't supposed to just be about the four years. It's supposed to be a lifetime of impact. And they do have a lot of demands that are placed on them being student athletes at this level. They are elite at what they do. But like your relationship with Riley is exactly what we're all about at UW. And we get to do that in a city that a lot of places don't have the resources and then the alumni that are within the footprint. Yeah, I'm close. thinking about these guys that are part of the mentorship group. That's an impressive bunch of it's uh, It's people. unbelievable. Now, the other thing you have to remember that y'all are doing with the mentorship group that's so cool too, and this goes back to this whole idea of leadership. Leadership's not a destination. Like none of us arrive at it. I mean, this has been the most humbling couple of years, at least for me, in leadership ever. I've been on my heels more than I've ever been. But I think yeah, about- Yeah, you had a lot of success your first few years. Yeah, and all of a sudden, last couple of years, yeah, it got tougher. It got tougher. And the pandemic obviously yeah. has a little bit, you know, a little bit of an impact on what we do. But but that's okay. Some of these things are cyclical and you can't keep doing it the same way. And I look at what that group has done, what you guys have done for Mike Hopkins. Same thing. Great success. Couple years had a real challenging couple years and you all sitting him down and having real conversations about your failures in business and your successes in business and in your life. And it's all transferable. And these are the environments, you know, where people are willing enough to say they don't know. And that's what to me, that's, this is what leadership is. It is like a complete selflessness, right. To give to others, but a complete self-awareness to keep growing, like an accountability to keep getting better. And so I just love these types of environments. It just juice me up, like being around other people that are like working hard to try to be their best. Like we're all here for one run at this thing. How do we become our best selves so that we can help others do the same? Like that's why I love doing what I do. Yeah, we talk a lot around here about really it's the sum of your experiences that make you effective as a leader and stuff. So talk a little bit about that. So you've you get this job, it's like the yeah. dream job. You have some success yeah. out of the gate. You know, things are going well. But talk about like the adversity part of that yeah. and like what you've learned from that and how perhaps that's made you even better at your job today. I remember when I got the job and Chris Peterson, former football coach of ours, who's, you know, very engaged in the community now, he asked me right away, like, how are you doing? And I said, I just, I'm so uncomfortable. Like, this sucks. I'm miserable. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm uncomfortable all the time. And he's like, welcome to leadership. Like, that's going to be the rest of your life. If you're not uncomfortable every day about something, you're not not doing it right. You got to put yourself out there. It's true. (laughs) And so what's fascinating is that when we were winning more in the higher profile sports, because that's really what grabs when people determine, externally determine our success, they're only looking at football and basketball, even though yeah. we we're still having a lot of success. Yeah, you've had these crew farming. championships yeah. and golf and yeah. softball yeah. and volleyball. You've yeah. had a ton of success. A ton and a continuous ton of success. Our student athletes that are saying, you know, gosh, like what you all did for us last year and bringing us back and keeping all the sports. And, you know, we, we lost basically 75% of our revenue. And still found a way to financially, you know, provide all the services that we needed to our student athletes. So for me, based on the value. You lost all that revenue because people were going to games. Yeah, we only played four football games last year, too, on top of it. So success looks different. But what I was going to say about this, and I don't know if this is weird or what this means, but like, 
I didn't ever feel comfortable when we were winning more at certain things. Like it's never felt comfortable. So because then it's a different set of challenges. It's keeping people. It's knowing that the adversity is going to come. And also like, don't get too high on this thing. Don't get too low on this thing. So I'm not really any more uncomfortable now with football struggling as I was when we were going to the college football playoff. I'm just uncomfortable (laughs) because I, I am constantly trying to figure out what is the environment How do we as a team stay true to who we are? And we're part of this construct. Like it's not, we're not this independent deal. We're part of a bigger university. So how do we do that? But then as name, image, and likeness is coming in and paying players is coming in and conference realignments coming in and now you're losing in football, you know, how do you stay stable? And I'm weirdly built, like in many ways, this is what I love the most. It's like, great, things things are not good. How are we going to get better? So I I don't know. I I think I love the adversity. I think that's what life's supposed to be. Well, that's it. So where does that come from? I mean, tell me about about growing up. Like, where does that come from? I think I failed a ton. Like, I was never, like, the best athlete. I I didn't even get into the University of Washington. I was waitlisted here. Ah. Uh You know, I, I, I ran for senior class president and got beat by a guy who was on a study abroad and got beat by a <laughs> he boom, wasn't even there. boom box tape in the stadium <laughs> at Curtis High School. So I just, you know, I don't know. And I think that I always loved helping other people. And so purpose really drove me. I think proving probably did more than it should have proving and purpose, but I've always loved having other people feel like they could accomplish something because of the relationship that we had. Like it's just resiliency. And I think that because I was not, I didn't have like a talent that was really cool and elite. I didn't. So when you were interviewing for the job, how did you sell yourself as like, I'm the best person's job? Let me tell you why. I think, you know, one, I had had a lot of experience at that point in time by the time I interviewed for that job Mm -hmm. at Washington. But I. And the job you had before you got the AD job was what? Assistant AD? I was kind of like the number two. And I had, I was overseeing football and I was overseeing revenue. So that's why so many women don't get to do this. They don't get the challenging parts of the job in a lot of athletic departments. So I had the hard stuff. Already, you know, I had hired a football coach already. I had gone through a lot of challenging things to generate revenue for the department. But I think overall, like, for example, how do you even get into this thing? I was 28 when I left Division Three Athletics and took a $1,000 a month internship in Lubbock, Texas, 28 with a master's. I moved to Lubbock, Texas, sight unseen. Texas, Texas A&M, Tech. right? Tech, right. Texas Tech. Yeah. And I had people telling me, like, I remember I went to Montana State and I met with the AD there when I was like 27. And he's like, you're never going to, I'm sorry, you're in Division Three athletics. You're never going to get to Division One. So you had to take whatever so you can I went and get took started. That, and then eventually I got to Washington and then I just, you know, kind of kept going. But I think it's that resiliency of like, one, knowing who you are and two, never thinking you're better or above anything else. And I think when you have that mindset, what happens over time just become a go-to person. If you're born and you come out with an elite skill, like our athletes sometimes, sometimes your identity gets so focused on that that you don't develop other skills or resiliencies around that because you can use that. But if you're somebody like me who I had a learning disability, it was never diagnosed when I was growing up. I mean, all kinds of things. What was it? So I have like a word retrieval issue and a comprehension issue. I still have it. So there's certain ways that I can learn or not learn. I used to sit in elementary school, you know, when you have to read out loud. I mean, reading out loud was the most traumatic experience for me. And I would count the chairs and count the paragraphs so that when it got to me, I would study the paragraph. Oh, so you knew which paragraph so I knew you which had paragraph to I read. Have. I would like kind of think in my head, oh, do I know how to say that word? I mean, I was so imagine being in this job now where I have to publicly speak all the time. I was just petrified of all those things. But over time, we all have deficiencies. Everybody has deficiencies. So how do you make up your deficiencies to find some of your superpowers? And like for me. So what do you think your superpowers are now? Am I one? I think I'm relatable as hell. I think everybody sees themselves in me or they can feel like they can be themselves too. I think, you know, vulnerability is really important in leadership. Very few people do it or know how to practice it. I don't. So how do you practice vulnerability? I think with your own development of your own confidence. 
with putting your success and your happiness not in the hands of anybody else but your own. And the more honest you are about who you are. Like for me, I do little habits, micro habits. Like I read some sort of like reading every day that has some sort of thought about mindset or purpose or place. Like motivational type stuff? Kind of, you know, like I do like prayers and affirmations and things like that. My favorite author is Julia Cameron and I've been reading her since grad school and I love her, but I do that. And then I do a, a journal every day. I ask myself three questions. What are you grateful for? What are you going to focus on? And what are you going to let go of? And I do those two things every single morning. So you're really purposeful. In the way Very you intentional. Your day. Because I will say this. I'm a great example of like how you can change your mindset for positivity. I do not consider myself a natural optimist. I grew up with a very intense environment at home. My dad, it is challenging for me still. Like he is a wonderful man and he believed in me, but I would not call him necessarily an optimist. Like I could show you the texts I get during football games <laughs> and things. So, but you can practice these things. And when you do that, I just think you feel safe insecure. You have trust that you're exactly where you're supposed to be in that moment. So imagine if you can have that skill, how other people around you can feel when you're practicing that. And when you're not practicing that, which I for sure, I'm a human being, I can see how my behaviors and negatively impact other people. And so to me, leadership, what we're doing, what you're doing, what I'm doing, like we have to be intentional about this because we have such an impact on other people and how they see themselves. And if we aren't good, other people around us aren't going to be good. Yeah. I'm interested in kind of your view. Like there must have been some kind of glass ceiling because you're a woman and all of a sudden. Oh, like, there still you're attached. is. And, and, and that's kind of my point. And there still yeah. is. So talk a little bit about what those glass ceiling issues were and yeah. still are for a woman in a job like yours in an athletic department. Or major yeah. University. I mean, college sports is the least progressive when it comes to the development of women and equality. I mean, it's, it's bizarre because our mission is really serving a variety of different students in a way that's pretty awesome. But we are, we're a little slow to this. So um, one, I think as women, sometimes we self-select ourselves out. So I became a mother during this time. I have two sons now, 16 and 19. And being a mom in doing this work and not having somebody at home helping me manage my family is real. And there's the same issue with that with coaches and getting women to coach because the demands of these jobs are so complex and you work and you make no money for so long in these jobs and you work every night and every weekend, as you know, all these games that we have and all these different programs. So I think being a mother can really be limiting for women or they think it can be limiting. That's why I love doing what I do because I try to show people you can do it. I'm very family friendly in the job, but mostly it's people's perception of you. And if it's mostly men making decisions, then you're always going to be left from the table. So the way people have treated me in this job now, like I will get notes and, and the tone is unbelievable. It, the, the amount of sexism that still exists or like committees that you can get on, you know, like whether it's the college football playoff committee or something, you just don't see any women getting opportunities still. Really? In our so business. Are, you're not any of these committees? No, there actually has not been a sitting female athletic director that's been on the college football playoff committee yet. Wow. And then when there's adversity in football, because you're a woman, somehow people don't think you can figure it out. This is I'm not coaching the football team. I wanted to do that. That didn't happen. I'm a leader. You know, you're making business decisions. It's not about X's and O's and that. I have enough people. Yeah. If I need somebody to help me evaluate that piece of it in any sport, we have those contacts. I do that as part of my job. But my job's more than that. So it is really bizarre to me because we're great leaders as women and collaborators. And the values it takes to run a successful athletic department. I come to the job every day as a mother. How cool is that? I think about like what these kids experiences should be because I'm a mom. I'm all about these kids like right. being their best. And and I think and I'm all about other people being their best. And I'm all about community and I'm all about not having to get the credit to just get the outcome that we need. And like I don't know why more women don't get to lead because we need more people like that. Do you recognize the value and the impression that you're making on people when you're recognized as a real influential woman in the sport, let alone just 
a person in the sport. How does that affect you and how you do your job? Yeah, you know, when I first got the job, there was so much made about me being a female in it because there were so few of us. And I really resisted that role because I never really identified in my work as being just a woman. I think I just identified as somebody that needed to work harder than other people to kind of finally get a chance. And so it's a real privilege and honor and a massive, what feels like a massive responsibility to get to be in a position like this, that so many other people can view that and know and see that I can do it too, right? If we don't see somebody that looks like us or sounds like us, we don't think that we can do it. Um, I think I really struggle with the attention still. Do people recognize you out and about? Oh, yeah. And they want to tell you, like, why the, it can the quarterback's be a con- so good. It can be a con- hey, when things are good, they want to take a picture with you. When things are bad, they want to tell you how bad <laughs> things are, like you don't know. But I think in general, this whole idea of, like, how you take humility with confidence to so then, like, to actually appreciating what I've been able to accomplish, appreciating the moment that I'm in it, understanding the difference that I've made, but also never losing sight that, all those things only have come from the opportunities, the experiences and the other people that I've met. So look, I just want to close by thanking you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast here. It was great hearing from you. And I I love getting a chance to talk about leadership and things like that, particularly as it's not directly related to our business, because there's so many things that are transferable and learnable. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate and admire you. Thanks for your time. Well, we're driving down I-5 to the South Center store. There's a woman that works there, and she sells shoes at South Center, and I think she's been there a long, long time. She's in her 80s, and she's selling shoes. So anyway, I saw her recently, and I I said, man, it's amazing you're still here. It's incredible. I just have so much fondness for her. I said, would you be on my podcast? I'm doing this podcast. And she goes, oh, sure, I'll do it. So her name's Eula Sauerwine. She's not a famous person, but in Nordstrom, she's a famous person because she's done it for a long time and she's been really successful. And when I used to work with her in the mid 80s, she was the top salesperson in the department, but she was just always such a nice person and a positive person. Yeah, I think it'll just be fun to hear her story. Sorry about my windshield wiper, but it's Seattle. It's raining. Okay, now I just gotta find a place to park. It is good when you can't find a parking spot. You don't wanna pull up and just park right by the front door. That's not a good sign. Okay, we're walking up here. Trying not to get hit by a car. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Hello, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Let's start early. So I'm super happy that I'm able to talk to one of my favorite people, a legend of Nordstrom, Eula Sauerwine, who, Eula, you've been selling shoes at Nordstrom for how long now? Uh, going on 48 years. Oh, someone told me it was 50. But anyway, no, it's not 50 close. as far as I know. <laughs> so you started... In the 70s. Right. Did you start here at the South Center store? Yes, I walked in off the street and they hired me. So what had you done before that? Why? I was a stewardess. You were? Yes. So why did you decide you wanted to start Because I came to Seattle and I couldn't be a stewardess because I was married. There was a rule that you could not become a stewardess if you were married back really? in my day. Yes, what, really. What airlines did you? National Airlines. Wow. And they merged with Eastern. That's kind of rough. I don't... I think they can get away with that anymore. And I came in and Mark Downs hired me. And I he, remember Mark he Downs. said to me, because I had my stewardess outfit on, he said, I don't think you can sell shoes. And I said, well, let me try. So that was it. That's the story. Were about. you really good right off the bat? Because yes. you, know, you, you became a very good I was fast. Here. And I could go from customer to customer giving them shoes that they liked. And we didn't have a lot of competition. Well, so you've been the whole time, your 48 years here at South Center and Women's Shoes. Right, just here, making good money here. I made good money for what uh, my, my qualifications. I come from Vermont, a farm. I didn't realize that you came from Vermont. I'm from Vermont. So yeah. you moved out here, you were yeah, a stewardess. And I wasn't very educated. In fact, I had trouble with the 
computers because I was used to the, you know, the old cash machines. And so they said to me, you're going to not be able to work here unless you learn how to do this. So in those days, there was no real training, right? No, right? That's, I, I mean, had they no just, training. They just roll you out on the floor and like, I had let's no go. Training. I had no training. They taught you how to measure a foot, and then you're on your way. And now people hardly measure their feet. I know. They say, well, I want an eight and a half. Well, you bring it out, and it's too tight. You say, well, I think you probably should get a nine or a nine and a half. So you were what we would call a pace setter or a top 37 producer. years, I was a pace setter. Which means you were one of the top 10% of salespeople. One in year, I was an all-star. I beat David. You were the number one yes, salesperson. One you year. beat David Butler? One year. Only one year. After that, I never <laughs> beat him. So, because you're such a successful salesperson, did people used to come in and offer you jobs to go work for them? Yes. Whether that was selling something yes. else or yes. another store? Yes. Like, what kind cars. of jobs were you? Cars. 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 Come, come sell like cars. some sell cars. Cars. Remember that people would come in like hire people to be insurance salesmen or yes. something, right? That kind of thing. Or now they come in and uh, not for me, but I've seen uh, T-Mobile come in and try to get some of our people. Is that right? And I think all, uh, Costco's doesn't come in, but Costco's takes anybody from Nordstrom's because of our service. Yeah. They give the same kind of service that we give. They take anything back. Yeah. I was in line the other day at Costco. I can't remember what I was doing, but there was a lady returning meat. She'd eaten half her meat. <laughs> they, did they take it back? Yes. Wow, that's pretty good. Returning meat. Steak or something. It's quite, it is amazing. So tell me, yeah. what brings you joy in the job? I mean, you, you obviously do it because you I, like I it. I like Nordstrom's. You've been good to me. The store has been good to me. The employees are good to me. My managers are good to me. Everyone's kind and good. Decent. What, what about, are the things that frustrate you more now than they used to? Yes, because... Because it's we, hard to do your job yeah, year we, after year. Well, we don't year. have as much merchandise in the wall because, you know, we'll get maybe seven pairs of Doc Martens in a seven right. in the morning, and I come in at noon, and at noon they're, they're gone because they've sent them out to other stores. Right. So the size will be gone, and the lady will say... Well, I came all the way from Bellevue. It said you had them. Yeah. And I said, well, we did have them here, but they're gone now. So is that the message you want to share with me today, is that we got to do a better job having more sizes in the store? Because I'm, uh, I'm yeah. listening to you. I'll, I'll, I I'll feel work that on way. It. Okay. That, that's good. Of, of the ones that are selling. Yeah. There's a uh, lot of things well, there's that always we don't that. need. Yeah, yeah. We could sell Jordans if we had Jordans, but we don't have any. We could I'm also, on it. I'm taking notes. We could also sell, like, uh, the Air Force One. Yeah. We, I mean, they'll come in. Where I want an Air Force One. We have none. <laughs> Is that none. because we sold them out or we never had them? We had them. And we sold them as out. As fast as they come in, they're gone. Like, yeah. we'll get maybe 20 pair in 10 days. They're completely gone. See, maybe what I could do with this, I could take these recording, this pocket, and I can send it to my friends at Nike, and maybe they'll oh, ship no, us no. more shoes. But Air Force One is really <laughs> a big shoe. So I first met you, it was in probably in 1985, when I came to work here as the second assistant manager. Right. And you've seen a lot of managers come and go. And I can only imagine at a certain point, you're leading them. I mean, you're teaching them how to do their job, right? Because you got all these new people like me, didn't really know what they were doing. I, I, I'm, I'm super like scared to even ask he this question. He was really good. He used to buy us the, the, those cookies. What were they called? <laughs> I don't know. I was going to ask you, what, what are your memories a, of working with they, me? They, they came in a red box and we used to go down and buy us cookies all the time. And then once you took us to a game. You went was, to a Seahawks game? Yes. Yeah. We all went to the Seahawks game. So I have so much fond memories of working with you here. It was really a, a fun time for me. You, you probably won't remember this. So literally, my first day watching the floor, maybe I was 23. And I, I knew who you were because you were the best salesperson at in the department. Time, at well, that you were, time. clearly. At that time. And you said to me, anytime you get a difficult customer, oh, you, yes. you give them to me because a I'll challenge. be able to take care of it. And the thing that was made a huge impression on me is... Most of the good salespeople I was around were like, don't give me the problems. I'll kind of run away from the problems. I'm going to cherry pick the easy ones, right? But you were like, give me the toughest thing you have, and I'll help you. The hard customers that you help will always remember you and say, I want that lady, that old lady that wears a hat all the time, because she will take time with me, which is very important. You know, it's so important. You'll get a customer, oh, they, that person said they couldn't fit me. Well, sit down, I'll try to fit you. So do you kind of help generations? Like, 
the woman when she's younger and then she had kids and you helped the kids yes, and maybe yes. she's a grandmother. And, uh, do you and have a generations lot of people that you help? remember me. They'll say, oh, you're still here. I'd say, <laughs> yeah, I'm still hobbling around. <laughs> Well, you look at it. I just want to let you know, first of all, I appreciate you doing this. You're welcome, honey. And I'm such a fan of yours. Well, I think thank you're you. the best. And I'm, I'm so, not the best, well, but you, you know what? I try. You, to me, you are. And it warms my heart every time I come to the store and I get to see you standing out there <laughs> helping customers. I just want to let you know how much I thank appreciate you. you. Thank, thank you for all you've done for welcome. 48 years. Well, thank Nordstrom's for helping me and giving me a wonderful profit-sharing program. What's that? The camera's still? Take it off. All right. Are we good? I think we're yeah. good, yeah. Eula, that was fantastic. Okay. You're the best. Well, have a good day. What are you doing tonight? What am I doing tonight? Well, that's the show. I really enjoyed chatting with Jen and catching up with Eula. I hope you enjoyed listening in. And if you happen to live in the Seattle area or just visiting and you want to actually meet the legendary Eula, she's a shoe salesperson at our South Center store. Stop by and say hi. And while you're at it, ask her for a pair of Air Force Ones. Now, if you're enjoying the Nordy Pod so far, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And while you're doing that, please take a minute to leave us a review so that more people can find this thing. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story to tell about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to NordyPodcast at Nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you may actually hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206 206- Five nine four zero five two six. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with my good friend, world famous documentary filmmaker and photographer Sam Jones. There's always a risk versus reward situation in independent filmmaking. The safe route, of course, is to go make a fancy pitch and see if you can get people to invest in your movie. And then the more high risk way is to say, I'm going to make this thing exactly how I want it and figure out a way to pay for it. But that's sort of my philosophy is I'm just going to make it work and I'm not going to wait for permission because if you can see something clearly and you know that you have a unique take on it, don't wait for someone to give you the money, like invest in it and it will pay off. I'm guessing you guys have this situation too, but don't we all have that friend where it seems like their job and their life is just a bit more interesting and exciting than ours? Well, Sam's that guy for me. Now, look, I got a pretty interesting job, but Sam's like consistently interacting with celebrities and doing all these interesting things. And I always feel some sense of envy about (laughs) my job compared to his. But you're going to learn more about what Sam does and actually how, in a lot of ways, it isn't that glamorous. And he's had to bootstrap this whole thing up and be an entrepreneur in his own right to get to this level of success. And I'm excited to share with you all a glimpse into his latest project titled Until the Wheels Fall Off, a documentary film on the life of skateboard legend Tony Hawk. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod.